We know how the story goes. The private eye takes the case and navigates the streets of the city in dogged pursuit of the truth. Sometimes, often, that city is Los Angeles, sometimes San Francisco, sometimes New York. But more often than not, it is the city he is trapped in, his prison, his labyrinth. But it's the 1970s now. Hollywood's reach stretches beyond studio lots, and darkness can be explored beyond the confines of the Inland Empire. And, oh boy, there is more darkness to be found than ever before. We know what happens when the detective leaves the city behind, when he finds himself in the fog at the corners of the map. That is where the dragons lie. Tonight, we're following two SoCal detectives, one already familiar to us, as cases take them south of the Mason-Dixon into the brackish wilds of Louisiana and the bottom of the world Floridian vortex. We're talking about Paul Newman's second outing as Lou Harper in The Drowning Pool and Gene Hackman in Night Moves. These fish may not be out of the water, but they're certainly swimming with leviathans, grappling with forces they aren't prepared to contend with. That's where we stand in the year 1975, a year frequently cited among the heights of American cinema, when darkness crept in from the edges of the frame and a monster lurking below the water heralded the dawn of the summer blockbuster. In the fast-changing landscape of American film, there seemed a race to plumb new depths of cynicism and the soul. Arriving in the same year, this duo of southern noirs are not just positively waterlogged, they're circling the drain. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. Just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. So you're a private detective. I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like, uh, your opinion, man. Step aside like a nice fella and let us do our job. What's in it for me? Nobody got hurt. I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. Ladies, it's okay with me. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films, then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Fred Felser, joined by my friend, Tristan Johnson. And tonight we're following Gene Hackman and Paul Newman on some breezy, sunny getaways to Florida and Louisiana, respectively. Sounds like fun, right? It's not. Nope. Continuing the trend we saw in The Long Goodbye in Chinatown, we're looking at two particularly grim noirs. We're going to kick things off tonight with Newman, continuing his journey as the eponymous detective from Harper, now in a new decade with a major change of scenery. We're heading first to the Louisiana Bayou and looking at The Drowning Pool. Paul Newman is Harper, and the Harper days are here again. I am required by law to advise you guys that my hands are registered in the state of California as lethal weapons. You understand? Released in 1975, directed by Stuart Rosenberg and starring Paul Newman and his wife, Joanne Woodward, with Murray Hamilton, Gail Strickland, and Melanie Griffith, uh, the first of her appearances this evening. So, uh, the plot here, uh, Paul Newman is back. He's returned as Lou Harper, and this time he uh, we begin the film with him arriving in New Orleans at the request of his former lover, Iris Devereaux who suspects her family's ex-chauffeur of blackmailing her, cheating on her husband. Of course, there is much more to it than that. 
Soon, scheming oilman, desperate for Iris's family land, is threatening to swallow both Harper and the Devereaux family whole. Harper tracks down the chauffeur, who in turn gets murdered, then gets himself captured by the oilman, and is held captive in an abandoned sanatorium, which leads to a tense and lengthy watery escape. He returns alive, only to find that Iris has committed suicide by pills and alcohol, pushed toward the edge by her own daughter, a daughter who it's revealed is also the child of the chief of police. The title doesn't exactly imply a happy ending, and in that respect, it doesn't disappoint. <laughs> so, Fred, what was your relationship with, with this movie? Did you know anything coming in? I mean, I, I just knew that it was our second go-around with Paul Newman, and obviously we've we've talked previously this series about our relationship with Paul Newman, and and we've gotten to watch him do Harper before, and it was interesting seeing him return to that in a new decade. Yeah, uh, just a, a different coat of paint for sure. But but um, I I do feel that there there's an evolution here. It's, this is not just your average your average sequel. Now mileage may vary. Um, I I I think I I probably preferred Harper uh, a, a touch to Drowning Pool, but. Same. Um, but I, I think that um, I think that Newman is as great as as ever. He doesn't have the William Goldman um, script to really pop like. It no, did. but Walter Hill and Eric Roth did work on this one, so you that, know it's they're not exactly the, uh, the Walter the Walter Hill contribution. It sounds like has gotten mostly erased from hmm. from it. His draft was the was the early one, and he have, reportedly wasn't super happy with how the script turned out. Sure. But a few things of his still linger on, I guess. I don't know. I don't know exactly what they were, but minor scenes, apparently. I mean, the the holdup with the guys in masks feels Walter Hill to me. Yeah. And there's some good one-liners in here. Uh, and And Paul Newman's uh, very adept at delivering them, as, as one would expect, but he certainly does not disappoint. Um, I'm not super familiar with Stuart Rosenberg as a director. I, uh, I, I would not, I, I would not say. I, when I was looking through his filmography, nothing else was jumping out to me that I, I was already familiar with. Yeah, I, same. This is my first. I mean, it's not that he's not between the Amityville Horror and Cool Hand Luke. It's not as though he's wanting for big titles. I just there happen to be classic movies that i've just never gotten around oh, to watching oh yeah oh Stuart. <laughs> oh my goodness cool hand luke of course um yes i've seen cool hand luke and i do like it uh but uh but but it's not uh and you know it's, newman's newman's very good in it uh but i i would not i guess i um i i don't put that near the top of my um my my 60s canon exactly uh Gosh, uh, there's also uh, a particularly exciting note for me with this is that we're on my home turf. We're in New Orleans and in the surrounding area. So um, it is really nice to get out of Southern California for a bit and get a change of scenery and uh, and to get some on location shots. Uh, this was shot in Louisiana. Uh, it's kind of hard to. Uh, to really uh, get that New Orleans feel anywhere else, but uh, but it was shot around Louisiana and also in Lafayette. That probably explains why, even though even though the film uh, makes it um, makes it look like this is happening pretty close in the New Orleans area, we see him crossing Lake Pontchartrain on the 
on the Causeway Bridge, which implies he's going to the North Shore area. Uh, but we also hear some, we hear some Zydeco music and we get some Cajun influences and that very much is happening further West in the state. So they're, they're blending things a little bit here. Uh, a few licenses taken. As somebody who's been to New Orleans precisely once, it was all just sort of, uh, Cajun to me, you know, it was like, uh, some Popeye's Cajun seasoning. All right. I, I am just kind of took sure it as face that value. Shop- that that shop that uh, that Harper and Iris meet in at the very beginning is still there on Royal <laughs> Street, looking pretty much exactly like it did when it appeared in this movie. I believe it. Uh, there, there does not seem to have been much change there. Um, so glad to get some New Orleans in the mix. Um, uh, context for the film, we kind of touched on the on the screenplay, uh, screenplay by Tracy Keenan Wynn and Lorenzo Semple Jr. and Walter Hill. Hill's script was majorly rewritten. Uh, final version does not bear much resemblance to what he produced, and he wasn't um, super excited about how it turned out. Uh, this is the, the second film adaptation of Ross McDonald's Lou Archer novels. He's called Lou Archer in the novels, not Harper. Um, and... And it's also the second one of his novels in the series following um, following the novel Harper was based on. So, uh, so uh, appropriate that this is the, the next one we arrive at. However, the original novel was not set in Louisiana. It was set in Southern California, uh, much like I think the rest or most of the rest of the series was. So uh, the, uh, the production team made the very conscious decision uh, um, decision to uproot him and uh, and get him out of his comfort zone hmm. so now i'm trying to you know now i'm trying to think back on it and be imagine, like, right, how much yeah how much how well the, uh, is I, it or is I guess it the, like the i guess oil the oil the oil plot was already there it just it makes more sense for that being in louisiana they yeah. they were doing an oil plot in in southern california but which i mean uh, i guess it's not fair but but I can see why they would. They, they would adapted it well. Yeah. Um, and, and it feels uh, despite my, despite a few quibbles where I can be like, Oh, that, that doesn't quite mesh with the geography of the state or whatever. But honestly, uh, I've seen a lot worse and, uh, and, and it's, um, it, it's recognizable, recognizably New Orleans and Louisiana. And, uh, and uh, I thought they, they did the, the setting a fair amount of justice. What's how'd the accent work land for you? Because I felt like there was an interesting spread of uh knowledge. Yeah, there 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 is, and in and I'm first of all I'm coming at this from a I live here in 2022, and um and certainly 1975 uh landscape in New Orleans is likely quite different. Um that said, they took every opportunity to lean into whatever accents they could. You don't get um, that it, it implies they're on the North Shore area, which is not going to have much Cajun and French inflection and dialect up there at all. Uh, so that's a bit of a stretch. But uh, hey, it's it's not impossible. You know, people move about. So uh, I, I I thought they did an all right job with it. I will take your word for it. Uh, well. Uh, the based on the based on the description, um, there's clearly quite a bit going on um, in the plot to this um, this film. 
pretty expansive cast of characters with usual dubious motivations. This is all classic noir structure. I, I feel like it's not really deviating from that. But then again, this is from a novel from 1950. Uh, so uh, that does check out. Misdirection on the case. Um, it it does, um, as far as the setting goes, it, it uses New Orleans super sparingly. They pop in and out of it, but but you don't really get the city feel very much. But instead, you definitely get the sprawl. You get the mm. you go you go out to the remote reaches of the bayou. You get the plantation feel. You, um, you it's pulling you in all the different directions. And it, and in that sense, you know the the greater. New Orleans area, Bayou area can still kind of act as a stand-in for the sprawl of of um, of LA. You're just not in a, a city the whole time. Yeah, I mean, now that you pointed that out, I, that totally lands for me while watching it. That wasn't a connection I made, and I think that, that speaks to how effective they do use the New Orleans setting. That they're keeping the same bones of that, that noir structure and, and use of geography, but the trappings are so fresh and different that it it is not as immediately like, oh, yes, this is basically the same movie we've been watching for weeks now. Yeah, uh, and, and it really it really is in, in a lot of ways, partly because of the source material, partly because we've already seen Newman do, do this shtick. But of course, we're 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 dealing with darker material here than we have before, and and we have a really what what stands out to me as being super different is is we've got a really lengthy escape set piece in in the back end of the the film that is drawn out quite a bit and um, and feels like like something that you would never see in a classic noir that that's that that whole escape from the sana- sanatorium feels like the product of of you know post a few decades of action movies bond for yeah. sure yeah the filling it up and then pump, busting out that way uh i'm curious if that's in the book yeah i have i have no idea if that's part of the the source material or not but it it definitely it feels it feels different now, now that i don't think it fundamentally changes much but it's certainly a, a a reflection of what Hollywood demands out of a movie at this time. Sure. I mean, it feels, I wouldn't be surprised to see like my camera do that. I think, but I think that also gets back to what we were talking about with hammer and like the pulpiness of the detective books, infiltrating the bond books and movies, and then reflecting back into the, the adaptations and it's leaning more into the pulp side of the equation rather than the hard-boiled side of the equation the uh, but i also thought there were still through lines to the previous iteration of harper for example his reliance on false identities to get information and also utilizing his good looks to get information from women right i mean both of these movies have him approach a key source of information at the bar assume a identity to seduce them and then get the information out of them, which is a great use of Paul Newman's beauty. Like even at this, this age, still a very beautiful man. Yeah. Yeah. You know, age is like fine wine, right? He's that he's your classic example of that. But in fact, um, he feels like kind of the same character almost. I mean, this, that he is, his detective is putting on the same, like 
oh shucks guy for both seduction scenes it felt like which yeah. might be from the book too right it might be just sort I'm of a sure consistent element of the I'm book sure that's a, a, a carryover but what's really interesting comparing uh comparing this to to harper is is in in changing that setting the harper is so much about putting him against the 60s counterculture mm-hmm. and and it's just it's present at every turn you can't look away that's well, gone. Like we talked about at the time, it's a total precursor to, it was a total precursor to the long goodbye, right? Like the long goodbye just takes that and amplifies it even further of, of his out of timeness. But, but we're, um, we're not, we're not keeping up with the times here in Louisiana. We've journeyed to uh, a different, uh, a different planet. And I say that as the, the film, that's how the film seems to view it. Yeah. Uh, this, this is, this is uprooting, um, uprooting our our familiar hero, our our Southern California hero, and dropping him in the middle of the Louisiana Bayou, and watching him interact with uh, a a long string of caricatures, uh, right? That's that, they, I mean, blessing Devereaux, like <laughs> yes, oh yeah, they they hit they hit on every every thing you could imagine. Uh, they they wanted to check that box. Yeah, I I mean, I thought it was interesting, too, how, and we'll talk about this probably in, in comparing the two, but that, that it does start with him in New Orleans, and we don't start in L.A. Now, probably part of that was financial, right? Like, just doing all your shooting in the same location that we don't do some shooting in L.A. and then do the rest. But it, it also just sort of establishes from the first how out of place he is in all of this. I'm also yes. just curious... I just don't know how big Harper was, and I don't know how much of a cultural footprint it had, so that 10 years later, when the sequel comes out, you know, I mean, it's like the Avatar sequel, right? But the Avatar sequel, at least, the first one was one of the most financially successful movies of all time, regardless of of anything else. At least there's that indicator of, like, reach within the culture, whereas Harper... I doubt had that kind of footprint. So I'm just kind of curious if this is speculation, but, but we're obviously we're, we're almost a full decade removed from, from this, but um, clearly we know one thing, there's not a third. Um, This is, this is where it ends. Uh, But also we, uh, American film has changed so substantially in the time that, um, th- since the first Harper came out, and and certainly there's there's still um, there's an appetite for for detective stories of some sort, um, and, and we're a year after Chinatown, and um, and I think the shot I think it said it shot in like December late late in the year, so um, no doubt there's there's a rush to capitalize on on some of that momentum, uh, and Plus, our other movie. To- uh, as a, and, he, and he also gets to shoot with his wife, right? Like he's like, all right, I'll exactly. do it, but she's coming with me. <laughs> Have a little vacation other, in New Orleans. Yeah, uh, exactly. And our other movie tonight's also um, same year, nineteen seventy-five. Um, so we we haven't forgotten about the detective by any means, um, but sure. but the the film landscape is more crowded, and uh, there's a lot of new shiny things here too. And you know, I think to your point about the film landscape that that also comes up in the stylistic 
differences between the drowning pool and Harper. And whereas I think, as we've already said a few times now, the, the script in Harper is just so strong that it, it you, you can kind of sink into it and enjoy it. It was shot in a sort of, as, as we talked about in that episode, very straightforward fashion, whereas this feels a little bit more stylized, a little bit more directorial point of view. There's some real good use of shadows. It kind of reminds me of um, The Godfather in that regard. I mean, not not in terms of its cinematic achievement, but just sort of living in that same universe of like, what can we do with shadows? And how can we tell story oh. with shadows in a in a color, you know, post-black and white film landscape? Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting call out. I, because I... I, I think that I think you have you have to look at so many so many films of this time as trying to respond to that those changes in trends and and of course uh, it's hard to ignore it's hard to ignore The Godfather it's hard to ignore Chinatown it's hard to ignore Bonnie and Clyde it's hard to ignore the the films that are shaping what uh, and what these directors are are putting out now um, and and yeah I you can see this is not quite it. Uh, not quite as straightforward as, uh, as as the original outing was. It doesn't do nearly enough for it to stand um, really out from the pack. Uh, but but I don't I don't think it had that ambition necessarily. Like this is not this isn't doesn't feel like a timely movie. It doesn't have anything to comment on 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 1975. It doesn't um, it doesn't feel like it's moving the needle at all there. But right. I don't think it wanted to. It's a sequel to a movie from 10 years earlier, both of which are based off of books from 20 years earlier. So yeah, it's not, it's not going for that, that timeliness element. Trading on the appeal of a, of a beloved star who is certainly at the height of his powers at at this time, or just at the, just perhaps just over the height of his, his powers. I mean, the Sting won best picture a couple years before where we're not, we're not too far. Yeah, but I think the Sting was like, he, from what I recall, the sting was him kind of being like, I had a string, he had a string of, uh, right? A string of like mishaps before that. And then when was, when was Butch Cassidy? 69, I think. So yeah, I think he had a couple of like financial failures in a row. And then the sting mm. like turned things around for him a bit. Oh, well, uh, if no, I remember it correctly. Out. As usual, uh, caveat, I could be talking on my ass. How about the uh, the Melanie Griffith factor here? Yeah, I mean, I assume we'll kind of touch on this a little bit. I really get to dig into it at the end because she's in both of these. But she's, I, I, I mean, my first thing I just want to put, uh, put in is the, as I often do, I'm going to spotlight You Must Remember This, which is a fantastic podcast about film history. Right now they're doing one about... Um, Hollywood and sex, and there is an episode, the episode about body double, uh, Karina Longworth goes back and kind of talks about Melanie Griffith's overall career and identity in the public sphere, starting with Night Moves. She doesn't really talk about Drowning Pool, although as, you know, as we're getting at here, they're, they're both sort of occupying the same space where they are very aggressively sexualizing her, pointedly, but still doing it. And how that was a reflection of her identity in the culture in that she was, you know, a young woman who was known for going out and 
being with older men and she either at this time or shortly after emancipated herself from, from her family, if I remember correctly. And so there's, there's a lot of that being baked into this. She, she married Don Johnson, like, like the next year, the next year. Yeah. She married Don Johnson the next year. So, and they, I mean, they, and they would go around and talk about it and just be like, you know, we're in love. And, and that's not, and I mean, the, you know, the fuck part is that it's not even the only instance from the seventies of a older Hollywood man marrying a 16 year old and then just going around and being like, yeah, that's just, uh, you know, like going on talk shows. And, uh, uh, I think Bo Derek is another one from that time that, uh, right. Is that who I'm, am I thinking of the right? It girl. Uh, so anyway, highly recommend that, that episode, that series, that podcast, because uh, she really does a great job of, of getting into it uh, with Melanie Griffith specifically. But uh, but yeah, the seventies uh, not a great time to be a. I mean, never never really been a great time, but not a great time to be a young woman in movies. No, and this is this is a trend that that um, is is not just confined to the our two movies tonight. Um, you we just. Just talked about Chinatown. Uh, you've got Taxi Driver, um, and and the, these these movies are all arriving in a very, very dense uh, period of time. And and there's all these hypersexualized underage girls. And yes, the films are are critical of this, but also the fact that it keeps coming up, that it, it's just so present uh, in so many high profile films of this time. It leaves you to really wonder, like how. how how, how did this come about? I mean, I really think it was just in the culture, right? Like that, that thinking of like almost famous and how that kind of represented a large, a lot of the seventies rock and roll culture and how, you know, I mean like a lot of famous baby boomer rock and roll stars, no, like admittedly like slept with underage women at this time and those women talk back, talk about it fondly, right? And being like, I was 14 and I got into Mick Jagger's room or whatever, right? Like, I can't remember specifically Mick Jagger, nobody sued me, but as an example of the kind of level of star that we're talking about, um, like the, it, it was the space that society was in as a culture was coming off of free love and just being like, I, I don't know. I'm not trying to defend and, it. I'm just sort of trying to culturally examine it. And here you have this, uh, the, this, the fascinating gymnastics that the writers try to pull um, that, that age with varying degrees of, of effect uh, where, where they, where they need the, the, the male hero to, um, to both rebuff to turn down the advances of this of this young woman, but to also still appear appear to be himself uh, a, an object of desire and to keep his cool. And it's that's a fine line to walk because that's that happens over and over again in these movies, right? And they also rebuff her, but still acknowledge her attractiveness, right? Like yes. there's still like, I mean, right? Because Lou 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 Harper is literally like. I don't want to go to jail is his reason to not do it. And you're like, well, okay. Yeah. It's, um, 
like it, it has to be acknowledged. They have to do something with it, but they also they they all still they all still do acknowledge the attractiveness of of said underage girl. It's rough. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think the word we keep using is Grammy, and uh, I mean not that you know it has any. I mean, you, obviously, you could even further too and look to like the exploitation films of the era, not that they were dealing with underage women, but in terms of the level of griminess and sleaze that was out there to be consumed, especially if you're in a, in a city, you know, it's on a spectrum, but it's still, it compared to the noirs that we had looked at, we've looked at in the classic area and the immediate post-classic era. This definitely has an extra layer of, of, of grime to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're not going to see a movie in the 1940s talking about like a 14 year old who's just throwing herself at every man she can find because you know she's getting back at her mother. Like, no, I mean they're they, they'll they'll have I mean, the big sleep ages ages her up just a little bit, right? But right, uh, right. For, 14, we're on we're on the other side of the line, no doubt about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, something else uh, I noticed with this, just talk, talking about like the larger 70s zeitgeist uh with the drowning pool is the use of a russian roulette scene it's sort of like oh yeah 70s movies it was like a fresh idea and there's like how do you show that a the guy with the guns you know got some cojones you do a russian roulette scene and, uh, and, and not there's anything wrong it's sort of interesting that it was fresh it has now become trope and then even uh if anybody's watched in and of itself, the uh, stage magician show directed by uh, Frank Oz that is very good, but it's it's thematic framework is about the Russian roulette. Anyway, this is pre Deer Hunter, so Russian roulette has not has not hit its uh, its peak for sure. But, I think it's sort of like we're, the we're larger, there. yeah. Like at some point, it got introduced culturally, and a lot of screenwriters were like, "Oh, this is an interesting idea. Let's tap into it." Anyway, that was, and I, I got off on a tangent about a very good stage, filmed stage show that people should watch called In and of Itself. Going back to the conversation at hand. Uh, well, and, and the other, the other thing just that we've kind of touched on, um, but, uh, but to further the, um, the, the demand of the times and, uh, and the kind of spectacle that this, this brings in near the end, um, we you know we have our big our big action set piece and and i think it's a reminder that noir noir is no longer just men in rooms with guns um this is that there's there's danger that the danger has to be bigger um mm-hmm. and and the filmmaking demands it the the times demand it that's the trend that we're heading in um and uh and you know not that there's not room for for smaller um films to sneak in through the cracks but in general we're 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 in the blockbuster era now. This is the year of Jaws. Um, things things have to go bigger. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the expectation. We talked about it in the last episode, but the great book, The Big Goodbye, which is about the making of uh, Chinatown, also uses Chinatown as a lens to look at filmmaking at that particular moment in the early 70s and, and how it's changing. And one of the things they talk about is when The Exorcist was released, and did huge numbers that had not really been seen before in a short period of time. The execs, or they quote an exec saying like, 
that's it. That's the game. We used to, they used to leave us alone to just make our little movies, but now the financial people on the East coast know that there's real money to be made. And this is what it's going to be about going forward. And it's absolutely, you know, Jaws and then Star Wars are sort of the real one-two punch that that finished the deal. But um, I think you're totally right that that already we see it happening here in the 70s of we are chasing the bigger opening. We're chasing more money. We're scale is becoming the the main focus. Yeah, uh, and and it gets increasingly hard to see how how you make those smaller films quite like they were done before. Uh, but of course, Hollywood will find a way. Directors that want that have a passion project will find a way. Um, we'll we'll still see plenty of variety going forward. But uh, but these the big the big productions are only going to get bigger from here on out. Uh, yeah, I mean, just sort of as a addendum to that, I am very curious what a Marlowe movie in 2023 looks like when we get to that, uh, you know, and it's sort of a, a little bit here with Paul Newman being an older detective. And I think that's going to be reflected in it, but I'm also just curious what, what that sense of scale, like how, I don't know, it'll, it'll be something really interesting for us to return to next year and do maybe a little mini episode about, about that and looking at, at how that's adjusted. So just something to, Put in our, our back pockets for next year. Well, on, on one hand, it does have it does have uh, Liam Neeson in it, and uh, and with Liam Neeson these days uh, comes a, a certain action cred, I guess. Uh, but on the other hand, it's directed by Neil Jordan, and um, and he is good at, at at keeping his scale in check. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm I'm curious what's going to happen with it. So we have another film to dive into. This evening, I should stop with the water connections. Uh, night, night moves. Uh, so let's roll the trailer. Well, I think Harry would like me to leave. Well, I don't think that's necessary. I think Harry thinks it is. Harry thinks if you call him Harry one more time, he's going to make you eat that cat. Gene Hackman is Harry Mosby. Hello, Harry. In Night Moves. Well, come on, take a swing at me, Harry, the way Sam Spade would. Released also in 1975, directed by Arthur Penn and starring Gene Hackman with supporting turns by Jennifer Warren, Susan Clark, James Woods, and again, Melanie Griffith. Yes, a very young James Woods. That uh, like, Is that James Wood? It is James yeah, Wood. Sure Woods. is. Coming out from underneath that car, getting ready to start a fight. Uh, so in this story, Gene Hackman stars as private investigator Harry Mosby, who takes the case of a former aging actress or an aging former actress rather uh, to track down her missing daughter, Deli fleeing his own marital woes. Harry's case takes him from Los Angeles to Florida, where he finds Deli living with her stepfather and his girlfriend, Paula. Harry rebuffs Deli's advances, but sleeps with Paula instead and eventually succeeds in getting Deli back to Southern California. But not long after, she is killed in a stunt car crash, and Harry pursues his lead all the way back to Florida, only to find himself out to sea as Paula attempts to retrieve a stolen artifact from a drowned seaplane. It ends in a truly depressing and explosive torpor, with Harry gravely wounded on a boat spinning in circles far from land. Uh, 
And that sounds way more convoluted than this movie actually feels like while watching it. Um, at least, at least. Yeah. Well, I think as part of it is just, it doesn't, it, it kind of motors along into the third act. And then all of a sudden it like really kicks into, into gear there. Yeah. Uh, it, it just burns plot in the third act, but it, but it, it, lays the right groundwork getting there uh well, it, it takes works. time and i and, it, and i it's, thought it worked it's coherent i know i i really enjoyed this a lot and i i did mm, as well i had not seen it before but i'd long heard about it as a great underseen underappreciated noir it was one that it, honestly like a reason for me wanting to do this podcast in the first place is to get to f- finally get around to watching these movies that I know I'd, I would enjoy and wanted to watch. And, and this is one of those. So I, I was excited to get to watch it and it lived up to the hype for me. One of my favorite discoveries so far uh, from, from the, the podcast, for sure. Um, Gene Hackman, uh, this, this got some acclaim in its time. Gene Hackman earned a BAFTA nomination for his performance. And I am not one bit mad about that. No, he's great. Uh, it was such a wonderful reminder of why, I mean, he is a phenomenal actor that is able to do that rare combination of tr- having presence, but not just performing himself. You know what I mean? Like he is playing a part, but so much of that part is still about bringing the Gene Hackman essence to it. And it's, that is a very fine line to, to pull off successfully. I, I think he's just a, a, tremendous actor um and and you could take all of the titans of of 70s cinema um and and you know you put them up against dustin hoffman or al pacino or um or or even de niro and i i i think uh, nicholson I, I would i might take hackman over all of them he's a great great actor uh and um and he's he's really wonderful here this script gives him a whole lot of range to play he's mm-hmm. a this is this is a detective with depth um he has got a personal life in total shambles um he's got a reason to kind of drive himself away from everything in southern california and to throw himself totally into this this case uh, you've got uh um, the the film's also helmed by arthur penn who previously directed gene hackman in bonnie and clyde uh, which which is uh, def- a, a favorite of mine, but also uh, a, just a you know one of those pivotal um, landmark pieces of American filmmaking. Uh, Bonnie and Clyde rightly gets a lot of attention, but I I thought I thought this uh, was this should be celebrated so much more than you hear about it today. Great. Was uh, it was written by a Scottish writer, uh, Alan Sharp. Um, and it is an original screenplay. This is not based off of a detective novel. So this uh, this makes uh, a whole lot more sense to me because this doesn't feel like we're just pulling from from classic noir. This feels like a noir for 1975. Uh, yeah, it's I, so I, I thought... interesting in that regard that it is so much more low key and so much more about his internal life and his, you know, we saw a little bit of domestic trouble with Harper in in the original Harper where he's getting divorced or he's divorced, but he's still kind of talking to his ex-wife and he like shacks up with her, but then he leaves the next morning and she's like, Oh, Harper, you never change. And, but this is way more 
grounded in psychological realism to it of this whole subplot that is essentially a, a, a 70s domestic drama, right? That wouldn't feel out of place with a lot of couples in crisis movies where he's reacting in complicated, interesting ways to finding out to the, that his, his wife is sleeping with somebody else. And, and it also brings in his, the private detective as Snoop, as voyeur, as someone who primarily looks at people's marital problems. And, you know, there's maybe a little bit of the classic, like he can, he can solve other people's marital problems, but he can't, realize his own but then but it but i i think it mostly sidesteps that and it is much more sort of interested in his compulsion to the job that influences his approach to his own issues where he's like i i then followed her around and i followed her her lover and then i confronted her lover and broke into his hat you know i used the skills of the trade to do that rather than emotionally open myself up to her and the film doesn't hammer on it so much that it becomes a major part of the story. It's it, it's it's present. Um, you don't forget about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's um, it's really um, it's really just give it, it's giving him a reason to to throw himself into the case as much as he does in in the end, and to draw him back again to Florida. Uh, this this is a character who um, who is set up as a as a a, a former pro football player. Um, and, uh, and so right off the bat that that's always is going to scream like, Oh, your glory days are, are behind you. And, uh, and, and the film plays off of that really nicely. Um, he doesn't feel like a sad sack. He doesn't feel washed up or anything. Uh, but, but you do get the sense that, that he's no longer at the height of his powers and he's, he's making do best he can. And with the hand he currently has. Yeah, it's just such an interesting character. And he doesn't, I, I mean, there's, there's some good lines, but he does not land in this, like that's not what makes him interesting in the way that so many detectives are interesting and are iconic because it's presence and it's line delivery and, and being cool, right? Like what we talk about frequently, especially with starting with Bogart, being the coolest guy in the room and that's not here like he is not the coolest guy in any room <laughs> and no. but it makes him far more interesting no he but he might not be the coolest guy in any room but but god hackman makes this look so easy he mm-hmm. he is delivering lines that would sound ridiculous in in most other people's mouths he can he can sell anything um and he does it with this he, he he's not just He's not just putting on a performance. He's not. Um, he's. I, I don't know. I don't know his approach to acting, but he doesn't feel like he's coming from the the same kind of method acting school that you get from a lot of the 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 uh, the seventy the the Pacino and and De Niro uh, kind of uh, kind of school of of um, acting. Uh, but he's just got this massive balance of intellect and and brute strength uh, he's a big guy he's got he's a, an imposing figure uh he's smart but he's wounded he's um he's a complex fully fleshed out human being yeah and i think that that is part of why the movie 
kind of ambles along gently for so much of it. And that, and this is not a criticism by any means, but I've, I've mentioned before the, the theory that I mostly subscribe to that within, within a movie, you've got time to either have a complex character, a complex plot or a complex world. And here it is a pretty straightforward plot, a pretty straightforward world, but it is a complex character. And that is where they spend their time and invest their energy. And it pays off. It pays off beautifully. He has a little mini chess set in his car that he likes to, to play. <laughs> um, well, and, and, but it's, I, I love that because first they introduce that and you see him playing it and you're like, I, I mean, at least I was like, who's he playing? Like, what is he, is he playing specific games? Is he playing a, you know, is he playing, via mail and then they get into oh well i am playing a specific game where this guy had a chance to win but he just couldn't see it and i mean it's a little writerly it's a little on the nose but it is thematically resonant enough that i'm like i'm on board and and you get the uh the 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 dual meaning in the title night uh moves did that just clicked for me so thank you for pointing that out (laughs) i i i once i once i had it in my head i couldn't unthink it Sure. Oh, I will never forget it now. Like they, that is just going to be be in there. Um, so yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about Gene Hagman because he's great. But uh, should we talk about the story a little bit? Like, what else we want to get into here? Gosh, um, the ending well, we'll get to because the ending we'll is get to the phenomenal. Because we're, we're we're everything's heading there. Um, so we talked a lot about Louisiana in in our previous entry. Let's talk about Florida here. It's not quite as expansive. We're we're in we're in coastal, um, the Keys, right? Um, we're, we're I think just, so. We're, we're just in that one spot, really, right? We're not Key. moving around. What what we see is very spot on for uh, for like that is that is in my head and from my my time along the Gulf Coast that like checks out for for coastal Florida. I've, I'm not familiar much with the Keys, but the, it seemed reasonably spot on for what they did but we're not moving about much no there's basically three locations in florida that they keep rotating through which is the guy's store the guy's house and out in the water and we go to each of those locations a few times and but then as i mentioned with the previous movie you know here we start in la we go to florida we go back to la we go back to florida and we're also firmly now in this at this point where la noir has to comment on the uh the the movie business of it all you know like i feel like the earlier classic era noirs that we watched la was a city and sometimes there was like an occasional reference to the movie business but it wasn't until uh marlowe that it really felt like it, we started getting to the sort of the self-reflexive. He goes and he watches them filming a TV show and they talk, but they're also showing a movie on another channel. He's like, I missed the classics. And then uh, with the long goodbye, well, I guess he's just a writer in that. So I guess this is really the next, next time that we've really grappled with like, LA is a place where they make movies, but I just feel like it's starting to become the the, the thing to go it, to. And I feel no, like you're you're totally right about that. Looking ahead, like the later era of of um, like if you see a noir now that is 
knowingly a noir, they're going to get into the the movie making of it all. And I think just sort of gets into the post-classical noir era of like yeah. you're acknowledging you know, the thing LA that we Confidential are referencing. can't resist it, right? Like right. you've got you you have you you feel like you have to acknowledge that. Um I think it's fascinating how different these two films approach approach that setting. Whereas whereas we just came out of seeing um uh, of seeing Louis them trying to milk everything they can in Louisiana and apply classic noir tropes. Whereas here, uh, Florida, is, this is the end of the world. This is this yeah. is, it, it is going out to the end of land to where everything else has fallen away. Um, we're, we're we're in a different space. We're we're at um, we're at the far end of it all, and that serves the ending extremely well. But you don't e- you're not even thinking about that. Like I wasn't thinking as I was watching this about how it was using Florida or what it was taking it, uh, what, what point it was that we were there at all. It could be, it could be anywhere, but the point is it's remote and that he is pulled, Harry's pulled from LA, pulled from everything else that's going on, following this girl across the country who's, who's uh, trying to distance herself uh, from, from her own crazy mother yeah, a lot of, uh, I mean, I guess, again, we'll get into this connection at the end here, but also a lot of mother-daughter psychodrama in, in both of these yeah. that's that's driving the conflict. No kidding. Uh, so, yeah, oh, should we, uh, well, that's how you made a note here about this is our uh, being a very sexual film, which I agree with. I think this is the first nipple we've seen in any movie that we've talked about, maybe. Uh Yeah. Oh, well, I think I, I think can't remember. There might have been like some correct. background nudity in Wrath of Man, but it, that was a very clinical movie. That was not a right. But this is uh, a very like adults coming together kind of, of film. Yeah, we get um, we get uh, some some Gene Hackman uh, uh, romance. We get uh, Gene Hackman lying naked with a fondue fork. <laughs> We're definitely uh, we're we're definitely in steamier territory here. I mean, Shaft Shaft certainly. That's true. Shaft, that you're right. Shaft and Trouble Man both were were yeah much more in that line. But I think that's also you know those are coming out of those are riding the line between like exploitation films and mainstream films, and then but it's also sort of I think representing the forefront of how that you know depending on your point of view, the, which direction you think the line is heading in terms of uh, being more permissive. But um, as we talked about last episode, listening to the Hayes Code, the imp- implementation of the, the MPA ratings, and then, you know, color yellow and X, and eventually going full on, you know, erotic thrillers in, in the 80s. Like this is a step along the way of, of that process. Yeah, exactly. You know, times are times are changing, um, and and films are are reacting. Some of them are some of them are setting the pace. Um, I don't know that we're I don't know that we're quite there with with um, night moves here, uh, but it feels but like it's in certainly a, in a, alignment, right? It doesn't feel ahead or behind. It's just sort of like no, right, exactly. It's um, and and it's such a strong entry coming in. Uh, uh, you know, I. I Hopefully we can raise the profile a little bit. This is this is one of the good ones. 
uh, and largely because uh, it ends on quite a high note. Uh, so what we move toward um, toward one hell of a, a high point, which is uh, the the third act, and it just kind of barrels through plot until we're we're all of a sudden we're we're in a a, a brawl on the beach. Deli's stepfather is is um, <laughs> uh, runs headlong into a pole in in what's a, a pretty visceral way to I guess he he survives. It seems he's just knocked out, but right. Um, but then, uh, then Paula and, and Harry jump onto the boat and head back out to, to see, uh, to what, what I had not seen coming was the, the, um, artifact smuggling plot that is nestled within here. Uh, they're, they're out to retrieve a, uh, a, a smuggled artifact from the downed plane that they'd previously seen out in the water and dropped a buoy nearby. Uh, and that's where things get really crazy. Right. Well, because also the dead man, it was one of the people that Deli had slept with. So she had recognized him and realized what everybody was up to, which is then also what got her killed. Yeah. It's all of a sudden, it was really interesting after she died. So I was like, where's the big conspiracy? Like, that's usually where these movies go, but we're nearing the end. And then he tracks down James Woods again, and James Woods is like, I'm not telling you nothing, and he runs away. And then all of a sudden, it, like, exploded into a big conspiracy. I was like, oh, yeah, there it is. Did it feel, the statue, did that feel at all like uh, a Maltese Falcon homage or tip of the hat to you? Because that's what I thought of at that that moment. I guess, I guess you have to think that, but it wasn't, it wasn't really built up much throughout. No, there's, Uh, like, there's a couple, like, right at the start, when he's talking about it, bookie right who's got them in the cage and he's like you wouldn't believe how much that thing is worth and like that's it that's the setup that's about it and well and also uh when he talks to the step the ex-stepfather and he's going on about like well you know i cuba's just 90 miles away so you know you just get some stuff and hop over and come back and so it's it's but it's very backgrounded right it's very much uh they do Low they, they do some some groundwork for it, um, may, and maybe not quite as much as they as they could. But honestly, I didn't mind. I was at, like, no, it just such a ride at the end. I, I I I was along for it, and they'd been doing they'd been doing such careful character work up till that point. It was nice to see things kick into action, and then I mean, we talked about we talked about there being a big set piece in in um, drowning pool with the escape, but this one has a a plane shootout out in the middle of open water with a plane tracking Paula down and uh runs her over she explodes because of her oxygen tank because she's been diving that blows the pontoons (laughs) off of the plane the plane then crashes into the water and the pilot who is uh his harry is a good friend who like the, first connect him into this whole world of the stunt, stunt driver the bandage stunt driver see him, see him through the bottom of the boat through as the glass drowns bottom to of death. the boat Try, like so he's intense. just trapped and then he drowns to death and meanwhile gene hackman's been shot in the leg and he can't even reach the the steering wheel for the boat so now the boat is just driving in circles around this uh giant bird statue on a inflatable raft circling the the void like just going going nowhere it's 
it's quite an ending. Honestly, it's one of my favorite movie endings I've seen in a long time. Because it just goes for it, and it pulls it off, and it's really depressing. <laughs> There's just no... There, there doesn't seem to be much hope for Harry. He's he's just stuck out there. No, I mean, Maybe this is... Yeah, I would put this up there with, like, with Chinatown, with The Long Goodbye, in terms of the detective is in over his head and he reaches and doesn't realize it. And then all of a sudden at the end, there's a series of revelations and he discovers just how much he's, he, he's not on top of stuff. And he's just sort of confronted with the void with like a a real nihilism at the end. We, um, and, and he, Harry doesn't die per se, but it might as well be a death. And, uh, even if he makes it back, he's going to be a different man. And, and, and that to me feels uh, Jake Giddies and and uh, and Marlowe in in Chinatown and Long Goodbye they they pull through things mm. are not, not with a cost but right. they they pull through but this this is in different territory we haven't we haven't been watching our our detective go down well I think part of it too right is that he's got something to go back to besides just being alive you know the Giddies is trying to get Faye Dunaway out alive, but she is a part of the mystery, right? Like she is integral to the thing that he is caught up in. But here, Hackman has like reunited with his wife and they've sort of like found a way forward and he's he's finally becoming emotionally vulnerable to her. Like he actually has a full character arc that sort of stands outside of in response to, but outside of the plot. And then, so he has a reason to like get back to LA. It isn't just like, we like this guy. We don't want him to die. It's, it, it, it adds to that. I don't know. Is there anything else you want to touch on? Uh, no, just watch this movie. It's, it's great. It's great. Um, it Dean deserves Ackman to be up there with, is, with the uh, other seventies noirs. Detective. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Would comfortably put this, um, in the company of Chinatown and, and Long Goodbye and not, not feel it's out of its depth. There's another water pun. Ha, ha. Um, so uh, Florida versus Louisiana, like we said, these are these are handled very differently. Florida is not a lo- Florida is not a place in and of itself as as much as Florida is a, a place you don't want to go to. A psychic void. <laughs> yes. Um, whereas Louisiana feels it feels like like Paul Newman in in Louisiana is like James Bond uh, in Louisiana or James Bond in Thailand or wherever he's hopping around to in the seventies, right? Um, he it feels like Harper is a bit of a tourist in in true. But I think both narrative both films use it as a way to push the detective outside of his comfort zone, right? I, so Very much true. of the noirs we've been watching it's about the detective on his home turf whether that's la new york san francisco wherever he is it's home field advantage to a certain extent like he always gets an overset a bit whatever but he knows the people he has a relationship with the cops like all that stuff but here these guys are both out on their own and uh it does i think heighten heighten the stakes for both of them yeah uh and uh, and and I I think that you know there's a lot to mine from that you know take your detective out of out of their comfort zone. That's in fairness 
that's not exactly new, but where you see that all the time is not in hard-boiled detective fiction. It's Hercule Poirot going on holiday somewhere and finding mm-hmm. himself in the mm-hmm. middle of a murder. That's been happening for forever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just in a different type of detective fiction. Um, so lots, lots to my, and, you know, up to right now when Ryan Johnson is, is keen to, uh, to start degrees. doing, exactly. Uh, but yeah, the, and I think also it moves the detective out of the urban setting. And I think that that plays into it as well. That, but yeah, cause they even like, you know, Newman arrives and they take his gun away, right? Like they, they're at, and at the end of uh, Night Moves, she she goes like, if I wasn't here, would you know how to do any of this? And he goes, no. And she's like, well, aren't you lucky? Right? Like these guys are literally just don't have the tool set to, to deal with the threats and situations that they're encountering. Yeah. Um, and uh, no, and I, we didn't talk a ton about uh, about the detective at all in um, in drowning pool but yeah yet another element of classic noir that's ensured to be just transplanted adversarial relationship with the police that sometimes can be helpful um but but everything the 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 you know go checking in at the the wealthy estate um going getting pulled further afield by the criminals um into the the into the twisted sexual preferences of the not they're really that twisted but you know digging into the sexual secrets of the the family which turns out to be the husband's gay she's having affairs the daughter's been sleeping around too like that's i mean that's the extent of it but it's played as sordid and lured everything there is already familiar it's just a different coat of paint whereas whereas um in night moves we have a much more existential detective yes. on a, a journey into the void, um, and, uh, and and that's why it works so well. I'm, it's it's it, it feels more in step with the times, um, and, uh, and and you know it's it's not the same beats that we've seen over and over again, or the beats are played so differently. You know, I wonder if the the literal sweatiness of these locations. Play is either just correlation or causation in one direction or the other of the heightened sexuality of, of both of these movies. And, huh. you know, that it is just so much more in the body, right? Like LA heat is not the same thing as uh, New Orleans or Louisiana or Florida heat. And so just like it, I think it just automatically gives more presence to the body as a physical vessel. I mean, an idea taken to extremes in body heat, uh, which we will True. get to probably sooner rather than later. But um, uh, so, yeah, I, I just feel like that, that I, I just don't know if that's which direction that decision-making process comes, right? Like if it's, or if it's just a coincidence, I don't know. could be any of this. I mean, on one hand, I think that night moves could have, could have been set in a variety of places, but I think that having, you know, that, if you're going to pull yourself away from 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 California, Florida feel it it is in its own in its own counter to California. It's a paradise for for uh, seen as a paradise for for some people, and and it is uh, tropical and it is hot and it is um, and it feels like an escape. 
Right. Uh, whereas right. literalizes so, getting out of the Hollywood show business, right? Like right. The, all the people in Florida are people who have left Hollywood. Right. You could go, you could go plenty of other places, but it would have some slightly different, different meaning. It wouldn't, I, I, yeah, I think the setting's chosen very well. And the fact that they, they don't, they're not there to explore it. Like they are to explore Louisiana. They're, um, they're there for a very specific reason. And that's just to, to push Harry toward, toward the edge. Yeah. Uh, we didn't really talk about Melanie Griffith in, uh, night moves no. that much, but she is another piece of fixed tissue. And obviously, we got into a lot of, I think, what we have to say about the topic in general with the drowning pool. But uh, I mean, just also as a like as a performance, right? I don't even know if you can talk about it as a performance because again, it feels like it's trading so much on her persona at at that particular moment, and and also neither movie gives her a lot to do, right? Like each one is like you got one scene where you try to seduce the detective who is 25 years older than you, at least. And then you just kind of like pop into a couple of scenes and then that's it. Yeah. I don't, um, she, she, you can't forget her in, in these movies, but I, I don't think the films really give her much, much to do with that character. She's right. I mean, Drain Pool gives her more to do, honestly, because she actually like is a killer. <laughs> She's yes. one of the murderers in that one. And whereas in Night Move, she is more symbolic, right? Like she is corruption. She is Harry's nadir as a detective that he brings her back to this situation where she's like, clearly the toxic home environment is what shaped her into this woman that he and the movie are both like, this is not going great. And then she gets killed. And that's what motivates him into the third act. So, and, you know. and I- and I'll admit that I'm I'm not super well versed in Melanie Griffith's uh, filmography. I I feel like I have I haven't seen when I think about back on it that many movies with her with her in it. I'm more familiar with her uh, her as a presence than than as as an actress. So I don't have a well, ton you know, she also got like a reputation, rightfully or wrongly, I don't know, but she got a reputation as difficult to work with, right? And like that was. I've uh, recently read The Devil's Candy about uh, the making of uh, Vanity, the Bonfire, Bonfire of the Vanities. And they talk about how the Melanie Griffith role almost went to Uma Thurman, but they ended up going with Griffith in part because they were like, uh, De Palma can work with her and he knows how to handle her. Oh. oh. And. So, but, you know, then you think about like, okay, here's this young girl who at age 15 was being put in movies that were sexualizing her. And then it was like, imagine like living out in the town in LA and then getting married to Don Johnson at the age of 16. Like, you know, she's, again, the, the membrane between these characters and who Melanie Griffith actually is, is very thin uh, in terms of like tortured home life, driving her to act out in certain rebellious ways that include sexualizing herself. And then to what degree she has any real age. I mean, like, you know, there's a reason that statutory rape is a thing, right? So don't need to go any further down that road, but it's just, uh, I I think it all plays into it. Huh? Um, well, uh, gosh, uh, where, 
Does that bring us to the end? I think we're... we're I think uh, so. One other thing I meant to bring up real fast during The Drowning Pool, one of my favorite sequences in that movie, and I think also in the movie where like really kicks into the next gear, is mm-hmm. the scene where they get driven off the road and three dudes in masks like drive them into a, a the lake or something. And uh, it just felt like that particularly was beamed in from the future of crime thrillers that particular, like that, like I said, that felt very Walter Hill. That felt very, uh, I mean, like through to Ryan Gosling in the, in drive, right? Like it, that to me was a moment where I could see where the crime genre was going. Oh, that's a good call out. Yeah. Uh, And I think, uh, keeping in mind that, you know, that uh, Drowning Pool feels much more, um, much more paint by numbers mm-hmm. than uh, certainly the night moves. Um, but, but it's, it's, um, it's still a well-made it's movie. And built. It's got, it, it, it's got, it's got a good core to it. And um, yeah, just and, nobody gets a home run in some, it. Yeah. Spot on. Again, Newman did not make a third in the, in this. Right. Uh, but you know it's it's worth it to go back and watch Newman, and it's it's I, like he alone is almost enough to make it a great movie. Uh, and like you said, if if he had the the level of dialogue and scripting that Harper has, it would be a, a fourth great seventies noir. But the script's just not quite there to sustain it. Yeah. Um, so, is that brings us to. The end of our, our trip to uh, to the south. Uh, moving ahead, we um, uh, we have our. Uh, well, we got to do our. What's our the box? Visual. Exactly, we have our. Oh, I thought you were. Just, yeah, okay. No. I thought you were talking about That's geographically where we're going. Now, no, no. Uh, we have our our usual segment. What's in the box? So, Fred, in honor of Kiss Me Deadly, what's something you recently watched? It's so good, it deserves to be glowing in that suitcase. You know, I've been on a real tear lately watching some classics from different eras that I just haven't watched that have been great. But I'm going to highlight a movie. I used the shuffle feature on Letterboxd to pick something off my watch list. And this is what came up. And I'm glad I finally watched it. Uh, it is a documentary, maybe docudrama a little bit. I don't know. I guess probably a documentary called Strange Victory. And it is from 1949. It primarily consists of footage from World War, like actual wartime footage from World War II, presumably shot by people like, you know, Houston and Ford and and all of them. Uh, It's directed by Leo Hurwitz. And it is, especially we're recording this, the week after 4th of July, the week after yet another mass shooting at a suburb not far from where I live in Highland Park, uh, in the aftermath of Roe v. Wade and the ongoing Black Lives Matter movement. And it is just an unfortunate reminder of how long we've been dealing with this as the movie very pointedly looks at these the soldiers who went off World War II to fight against fascism for freedom and then came back and were immediately thrown back into a society that also supported fascism and racism and all that, just in a not as direct and as genocidal a fashion as 
the Nazis. And so it's sort of a like, but it's made in the moment, right? Sorry, actually it was released in 1948. So it was a very immediate document of, you left I'd to fight it, and then you I'm come. I, as, yeah, um, I just I only know about it because huh. some film critics I follow had watched it and and rated it very highly. So I tossed on my watch list, and I finally watched it. But I, it is one of the best edited movies. Like it is pure cinema in the way of like montage, combining us and juxtaposing a series of images and using narration oh. to string them together and like the the what it what it achieves is phenomenal like on a pure technical level it is great and then also on a content level it is great highly recommend awesome um i wish i had anything of that caliber to go to vet for this week i uh i i uh had not one but two disappointing um, disappointing. Uh, wish I could have this last weekend, where um, where where a screening I attempted to go to of Flux Gourmet was uh, was taken off the schedule when I got there, and and that led to me just going to see Jurassic World, whatever Dominion. I don't know. Don't do it. Is all I can say. <laughs> um, just don't do it. Uh, and. Um, and, and then I, I had got pulled into some work and had, had not been able to make it to, uh, Memoria, which finally showed up in New Orleans this weekend. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of out of luck. I, I did, I did, uh, watch, it's not a movie, uh, but it is, uh, it is about detectives and it is about a podcast. I did watch the first season of Only Murders in the Building and, and, and had a, a real good time with it. Uh, you know, it's good to see. Steve Martin and, and Martin Short uh, and, and Selena Gomez um, all all doing their thing, wearing spectacular coats. Yeah. Um, we'll be it... seeing Steve Martin in just a couple episodes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we will. Um, uh, and, and you know, show's just delightful. Uh, I, I really, really enjoyed the first season, so uh, I'm looking forward to where it goes from here. Anyway, uh, that's, yeah, first that's my only plug. No, it's that's a great pick. First season is, as you said, wonderful. Uh, the, I, I thought the first episode was just a little hairy, getting it set up that like these three characters are spending time together. Like that, they had to get over that hurdle. But once they do, yes. and settle it, into the actual show, you're like, this is a lot settled, of fun. It settled in, and they were trying to do some interesting things throughout. I uh, I appreciated them playing around a little bit with form. Um, I didn't find it. It's it's nothing it's nothing earth shattering but it's just oh. so they're such enjoyable characters and Absolutely. and to see Steve Martin and Martin Short still doing their thing together is a total delight uh, 100% yeah just getting to watch them there's one scene where Steve Martin gets just real physical comedy that's <laughs> Uh, as yes. I guess it would be like a callback to the Wolf it, of Wall Street, but yeah, I, uh, when I was watching that, all, all I was thinking of was the Quaalude scene, right? But um, it's like it's not late forties, early fifties to Leonardo DiCaprio. It's late seventies Steve <laughs> Martin doing it, and here's like, damn. Uh, also made me think of um, Sandra Bullock in The Lost City, and I mean, she is not that far from sixty but she is still doing some physical comedy in there that I was like, good for you, Sandra Bullock. You still, you still got the, the, the juice. 
That's so. uh, yeah, more physical. Well, young or old, I mean, or old. Just, we don't see enough of it anymore. Agreed. Uh, and, let's move away from. Right. I, I mean, I enjoy a good improvised comedic movie, but let's bring back some structured writing and physical and scene gags that are that are for, like cinema and that are done by framing and just like thought through jokes rather than let's riff for an hour and then take what's the best material. Please, I need I need more I need more daring stunts. I need more zaniness. Um, I, I take your comedy lessons from from Keaton and Chaplin and Jackie Chan and Jackie Chan and definitely Jackie Chan. Uh, well, as always, thanks for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle celluloid dirt join us next week when marlo's back baby we're checking out some updates on very familiar stories with farewell my lovely and the big sleep and in both films the great robert mitchum finally comes knocking to which i say it's about damn time until then may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation good night celluloid dirt is a strange phantom production Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend.